Over the next few weeks, we will be interviewing the authors from the collaborative book, The Grief Experience, Tools for Acceptance, Resilience, and Connection, which is set to release in February of 2024. These authors have each experienced their own unique grief journey and will be sharing their personal stories with us. We will also explore the specific tools they used to cope with their grief and how these tools can benefit others who may be going through similar experiences. Grief is a complex and challenging process, and each person's experience is different. By sharing our stories and tools, we hope to provide support, guidance, and comfort to those navigating their grief journey. Each author has experienced different types of loss and comes from a variety of backgrounds, beliefs, and experiences. As a result, they offer valuable insights and perspectives. We are honored to have them join us on this podcast series and to share their stories and tools with you, our Path 11 podcast listeners. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I'm very excited to bring our next guest onto the podcast. She is a good friend of mine, also one of my Reiki master graduates. Uh, we've known each other for quite a while, and up until recently, we shared some beautiful office space, but I have moved my studio uh, into a bigger space just because uh, things have gotten a little crazy with some sound healing instruments that I've been buying. And so looking to do a little more sound healing. So I miss those guys already. And it's only been like five days. But my next guest, she has been on the Papal podcast before. I think we did a little bit of a uh, panel recording with Kelly Doherty, who you guys are also familiar with. If you listen to some of our more recent podcasts this year, she's one of the experts on grief. And uh, Sherry and I are going to be working with her again and working together on a new book. So let me tell you a little bit about Sherry. She is an LCSWR, is a highly skilled and experienced licensed clinical social worker with over 15 years of experience in the field of mental health. She has a master's degree in social work from Adelphi University and has worked in a variety of settings, including hospitals, schools, and private practices. She's also the owner of Sherry Davies Coaching, where she is focused on teaching and writing. And Sherry and I had a Reiki session I want to say it was like a year and a half or two years ago or and something yep. in that. And I don't remember, but it, I'm like, Sherry, I think you got some books. You're going to be writing some books. And she was feeling like the soul's calling to write. And she's like, I'm going to have like three books under, <laughs> under yeah. it, very shortly. Right. You told me it was seven. But seven. Okay. You yeah. told me seven. <laughs> You're going to be up to three, I think, by next year. Yeah. So, so she is a contributing author to Holistic Mental Health Volume 1, and she has signed on for another Holistic Mental Health Volume 2. And then the one that we are collaborating with is called The Grief Experience, and she is also a contributing author there, which is what we're going to talk about. And, And we both have worked with our good friend Kelly Doherty from the Center for Informed Grief. She's worked with Kelly also on divorce trainings for school personnel. 
And outside of work, Sherry enjoys spending time with her family, her friends, exploring the great outdoors and pursuing do-it-yourself projects, which she is great at. And uh, she's also uh, active on social media. And you can follow her on Instagram at Birch Hill Counseling for insights and inspiration related to mental health and wellness. So Sherry, welcome back to the Path 11 podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So I'm I'm really interested in your story and to have this podcast recording for a variety of reasons, because you are going to be sharing with our audience today about an anticipatory grief and what that is. And uh, Sherry will give you a little more information, but her husband was diagnosed uh, going on about five years ago with early onset Alzheimer's. Is that yep. correct? Yep. They call it younger onset now, but it's early onset. They're the same thing. It's just now they call it younger onset Alzheimer's. Right. So, so in the book, The Grief Experience, we are all writing a different chapter in the book about different types of grief and bereavement. And Sherry is going to share her story about what it is like to have anticipatory grief and what she has been going through with her husband. She has made a lot of, of connections in her own community. She's on television all the time advocating for the Alzheimer's Association. She's on her local news channel, I feel like, every month. Yep. Um, very active in this community, trying to fight and find a cure for this. So, so Sherry, why don't you give us a little bit of uh, background about you and your husband and kind of what life was like before and when you started to kind of notice that maybe some things were changing in Chris? Sure. You know, so my husband, Chris, around, I would say like 48 years old, there was a noticeable change in kind of how he was doing things. And he wasn't paying attention, it seemed like, to small things. You'd leave the house. He'd be like, where were you? Where were you going? You know, you'd I'd come back from, you know, getting my hair done and he'd be like, where have you been for four hours? You know, and I'd be like, my hair is all new, you know? And so he wouldn't know things that he normally did, right? It was stuff that he had always noticed that now suddenly was kind of going out the window. And I just thought, you know, our son's in high school. We're very busy. Our son was in sports. You know, there was a lot of travel, all that kind of stuff. So I thought, you know, I just, our lives are busy. He's just not paying attention. And so when my son was a junior, he was taking an AP psych class and he comes home from school. It was like in the spring of that year. And he's like, Mom, I, I want you to see this brochure. You know, I think dad has Alzheimer's. We learned about it in school today. And I was like, your dad does not have Alzheimer's. Your dad's just, we're overwhelmed. We've got a lot going on. He's just not paying attention. Like, that's crazy, right? Because, you know, he's like 40, 49 years old. So didn't think anything of it. The following summer, we're camping. We camp with a lot of friends. And one of Chris's really longtime friends came up to me in the middle of the of the week. And he said to me, you know, there's something wrong with Chris. He's like, he just, he keeps telling me the same thing over and over again. He doesn't really, he's not realizing that he said it, things like that. And I was like, no, like that's just, no. But a little bit inside the back of my head was kind of like, well, that's weird because now Aiden has said something to me and now our friend has said something to me. So I kind of paid attention the rest of the summer and I started kind of chalking up a few like weird things that happened. We went on another vacation with his family and I had changed the color of the duffel bags. And instead of his black bag, we had red. And he kept asking me, where's my black duffel? Where's my black duffel bag? And it was really not something that was normal for him. So that October, we went to the doctors and he was going for his regular physical. And I was like, I'm coming with you. I just want to see. And when we got there, his primary care physician and him had already been talking about his memory issues 
And so that was a little shocking. So we kind of talked about what was going on. And then the doctor gave him what's called a mini mental status exam. And so kind of went through a few things. And then they did, if you were like the clock that's in the back of my office here, right? The regular clock. He had him draw the circle, had him draw the numbers in it, and then told him to put the hands to like 10 to 11. So it's a a three or four step process, right? All at once they told him. And Chris ended up drawing, the clock was like the shape of an oval. The numbers were all messed up. He couldn't get the time. And I was like, what is happening? It was, I mean, when you say shocking, it's not a strong enough word for how I felt in that moment. And so it was pretty clear at that moment that there was actually something very wrong. And now it goes back to, we can track it back to when Aiden was a junior in high school. So from that process there, we started, you know, getting testing done, getting a neurologist. And within the next year, he was, he was diagnosed with younger onset Alzheimer's. Wow. And so this really isn't um, a diagnosis that I think most people associate with young people. So how, how does it, onset early? I mean, do we know what the causes are of this or what could possibly be some of the contributing factors? Does it run in his family or? Right. So younger onset Alzheimer's is typically not one of the familial um, types. It can happen, but it's not typical. There's really only about 200,000 people in the U.S. um, who have younger onset, although you're starting to see it pop up a lot more. And I think some of that has to do with a lot more information. People are starting to be more open to going and talking about it. So you may see those numbers rise. But at this moment, you know, the doctor has said they don't really know. Could be environmental factors, could be something, you know, he had some concussions playing, you know, sports and doing things, you know, in his job over time. You know, it could be a combination of things, but there's not a real specific answer as to why he got it. Um, Nobody in his family had younger onset, so it's not like it's something that went through. He does have Alzheimer's in his family, although the interesting thing is we just did some genetic testing and he doesn't have any variants for even later onset Alzheimer's. There's a specific marker you can look for. He doesn't have that. So this is really an anomaly. And again, you know, when you're looking at younger onset, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around that if somebody's having kind of things that look like not paying attention, you just attributed to other things like we did. You know, we just attributed it to life, you know, getting older, like, you know, just being busy. And so it's not like when you're in your 70s where you're starting to kind of have that general, you know, there is some forgetting things like that. So you pay a little more attention to it. We just had no idea. Wow. Wow. So, and I'm just going to ask a really like, Benign question here, just in case anybody else has it, but can you tell us the difference? What is the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Are they very similar? Are they like similar diagnoses or what's the difference between one and the other? Sure. Dementia is the category of different types of memory loss. So there's frontal temporal, which is a specific one that's in the front of your temporal lobe, has different features. Alzheimer's is pretty much your most the most general one of all of them. So dementia itself is, Alzheimer's is a dementia. Dementia is just an umbrella term for any of these memory loss types of situations. Okay. Yeah. So so when you first got the diagnosis, clearly, like you said, once you started putting the pieces together, you think it was actually onsetting at least a year or a year and a half earlier than when you got the diagnosis. And now you're coming up on the beginning of year five. 
So, so what has, has there been a lot of deterioration? I mean, what has each year brought and maybe we can kind of bring in this anticipatory grief and kind of talk about that. And what is that? Because ultimately, you know, I guess we're assuming that this is how Chris may pass and transition from Alzheimer's. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he has a terminal illness and that was the first thing that we had to wrap our heads around. This is not, there is no cure. And so, you know, that's the difficult part of this is that you picture your life of what it's going to look like. When I'm, you know, 51 years old, I was like, this is what my future looks like. This is what we're going to do when we retire. And you suddenly lose that future. And so when you talk about anticipatory grief, that starts right there for me is where I was like, wow, my future has now just been completely taken away from me. And so you have to grieve that on and on and on. It doesn't stop, right? It It's not always the same level. And that's that's how grief is, right? There are days where, you know, today I got up, it was a great day at my house. I came in to do this, feeling good, right? So I'm not in the grief mode today, but I'm going to guess that after we're done with this and I have a chance to process all of it, I'm going to feel it again. And that's what happens is for me, I have to look at my future all the time. And and our world is really everyday Alzheimer's. What does that look like? So in the beginning, a lot of it was, how do I live on my own? How do I take care of things? Do I live in my own home? Do I get an apartment when down the road? Like, how do I take care of him? As, as younger people with Alzheimer's, right, we are looking at having your son was in college at the time, right? How do we continue to pay for college if we need services for Chris? How do I, you know, make choices on what does my retirement look like? What do I, do I live in this house? Do I take, how do I take care of this, right? Things that you don't think about on a daily basis. Like, I don't mow the lawn. Like, you know, I don't plow the snow. Like those things, you know, there's, there's day-to-day things that I think you don't really acknowledge until something like this happens. And so for me, a lot of the grief has been not only with knowing that Chris is going to die and having to kind of look at what my life looks like in that aspect, there's so many other things that go along with that. It's the the grief of the dream of our life together, right? So that's a death that I have to look at because he's not going to be around when we're 70. There's just no way. So it comes and goes. And then that anticipatory grief is really about all those things that you miss. There's also for me, what does that look like for Aiden? What does that look like if he has children? Like Chris won't be the grandfather there that we hoped he would be. How does that play into things? So it's really multifaceted when you think about anticipatory grief and each person's situation is so different based on where they are. Right, yeah. And is there a life expectancy that one is given with the early onset of how many years? Like do some people deteriorate more quickly than how Chris is? Is he on a really good track compared to others? Is it case by case? You know, what what are you looking at in terms of that? So it's really interesting because younger onset Alzheimer's typically runs significantly faster than regular Alzheimer's. So we have a friend who has just passed away from younger onset Alzheimer's as well. And she had it for five years. So Chris is starting his fifth year. And so we would think generally that he would be farther along. What his doctors in our recent appointment said is that 
because Chris works out so much, he works out four days a week. He's completely socially active because we make sure that happens. And he eats right. We monitor all those kinds of things. His progression has gone a lot slower than they anticipate. So really at almost five years, he should really be far more disabled than he is. So we feel really fortunate that we're in the position that we are because it's actually not normal for the the progression that he's in. He actually should be farther down the road. Wow. Okay. So really, I mean, that speaks a lot to keeping the body physically active, having a really good social environment, connection with friends. I know, you know, he still goes on like camping trips with his friends. It's not like his life has stopped. You guys still do a lot of stuff together. So what what is like your typical day like now compared to the first year he was diagnosed? Like what what is it like in your house to, you know, live with somebody with this and how have you guys adjusted and you know what is that like? Yeah, I, I liken it a lot of times and and it it sounds you know, somewhat funny, but I I liken it to having a really giant eight-year-old in my house. So he's he's independent in a lot of ways, but there's a lot of things still that I have to follow up on that I have to kind of monitor, right? So at this point, like he's not cooking because we want to keep, you know, safety at the house. There's things that had happened. So we, you know, so it's really a lot of planning on my part, just like you would if you had a younger kid, right? You're going to you're going to make sure they have their breakfast, their lunch, their dinner. You're going to plan things out. When I was working evenings, we had family members who would take him for dinner. So my parents live um, out of state. So if I have to go visit them, it's really planning on who's going to like take him for dinner each night because he can he can live independently in our home right now. We have a dog who wasn't really a emotional support animal, but he has become one. So that's been great for us too. But it, there is a lot of planning that goes around it. Um, he's, you know, he's fairly active in terms of he mountain bikes with his brother. But like, those are things now that he doesn't go on his own. We don't want him getting lost in the woods. So like, now his brother will go with him. And it's great because they get along really well. So that that's really helpful. Our friend group is pretty amazing. He's had friends that he's had since elementary school, middle school, who really come together at, at least, you know, they live down south from us. And, you know, they'll drive up at least once a month to do stuff with him, go places. And then our friends that are local are constantly, they're doing like movie nights. They're doing things together. They're going, you know, even if they're just hanging out is they've really come together and and they're cherishing the time they have. Because again, they're going through all the same anticipatory grief because their friend that they've had for a lifetime, you know, some of his friends have been men in his life longer than I've been in his life. And they're going through the same thing of realizing like, we're not going to be, you know, old guys hanging out fishing together down the road. Like they're, they're going through exactly the same thing. Right. And do you see Chris grieving in any way? Like what is his level of awareness of what is happening to him and what's going on? Yeah, Chris is fully well aware of what's happening to him. And he's pretty amazing, I have to say, because he is just one of these like roll with it kind of guys. He's just like, I accept it. I'm going to live my life to the fullest. And that's really what he's doing. And he's doing what he needs to do to try and stay as healthy as possible. So again, he is very, very good about like, he's like, I'm going downstairs. We have a we have a home gym now for him. He works out four days a week. If he hasn't worked out like every other day, he's like, oh, I got to get down there and do it. And it's really keeping him active. You know, you'll see things now. It's it's more difficult at, at this point in time where he can't read anymore because he can't follow along stories. 
he's not watching new movies anymore because he can't follow the plot. So we're watching a lot of like old fun stuff that like we just started watching Seinfeld again. He loves Seinfeld and we're going through those stories. But, you know, I'm seeing at this point, right, things where like even in a half hour show where he's still losing track somewhat of who characters are and like what has happened in the show. So, you know, and it, it's getting more difficult as time goes on. So, you know, it, it's a lot of just kind of acceptance that, okay, we're just doing the best we can do and, and trying to see the positive every moment that we are spending this time together, that we are, you know, he is happy. And, and that's kind of a chicken I do. Like, how are you feeling? Are you still feeling happy? Are you okay? Um, so, you know, it's, it's difficult, but, you know, you do have to really kind of forge into what are we making the most of now? Right. And are there any like do's and don'ts for people who might be listening that um, may have somebody that has the uh, later onset Alzheimer's, but any do's and don'ts or tricks that you've learned along the way? Like, you know, if Chris is forgetful. Do you correct him or do you just go along and answer the same question 20 times as if it was the first time you answered it? You know, are there just some suggestions or some tips that you've learned, you know, and have also been educated on and what is really helpful in supporting a person, you know, with this terminal illness? And what are some things that you would recommend, you know, you don't do or certain reactions or things like that? Yeah, you know, it's definitely been a learning process and it has been, you know, Certainly one of those things that along the way you do have to kind of look internally as to how you're handling it because it does make a huge difference. I can say in the beginning that it was far more challenging for me because the the asking the same question over and over again was really difficult for me. I was like, oh my God, like I just told you this, right? It's You have to get used to that that's happening. And for me, it was really about changing my mindset of like, okay, he's not asking me to annoy me right? This isn't about like, he's not doing it on purpose, it, but it takes some time to move into that, right? And so for now, you know, when he's asked me the same thing 15 times, I'm like, hey, like, yep, here's the answer, right? I just kind of go with like, I, you know, I'm not reminding him he's asking me 15 times. It doesn't serve any purpose. It makes him feel frustrated. It makes me feel bad that I was being a jerk about it, right? So it is answering the question over and over again you know, when he loses something and, you know, if he puts, you know, his sunglasses down and can't find them, you know, it's kind of, for me, it's like, all right, let me, do you want me to help you find it? Do you, you know, let me look for them for you. So if, you know, I can kind of gauge now that I know where I'm at, what I need to do in that situation. It takes time though. And I, and I will say I was not very good at it at the beginning. It was very frustrating. It was very difficult. So Immediately, one of the things I did was I, I got myself a really good therapist who understood, you know, what grief is like, you know, understanding terminal illness, because for me, it was a lot of processing all those feelings I had about what my life was going to be. And that sounds really selfish when you say it out loud, right? But it's actually not. It's really important because if you don't take care of yourself, you are going to crack under the pressure of what you have to deal with. So for me, it was finding a good therapist, you know, talking to my friends when I really felt like, hey, I just, I, you know, I need somebody to talk to. Or on the, on the flip side of like, I just can't do that. I just don't have it. You know, that's just not my energy today. Like, I just don't, I got to stay home. I got to relax. I got to do whatever. So being able to speak to what I really needed, I had to figure out what that looked like for me and for our family. 
So that's, it's a process, right? It didn't happen overnight. I would say at year going into five, I'm pretty good at it. It's not perfect, but I'm pretty good at it. Year one, it was bad. It was not good at all. It was a lot of like, are you asking me this question? So that's definitely the first thing is figure out what you need because you, you know, I always like it to think about when you're on an airplane, right? The air masks come down. They tell you, put them on yourself first before the other person. It is really the same thing with this. If you don't take care of yourself, you are not going to be able to take care of anybody else. And I have not only just myself to think about, but I do have, you know, my son's 23 and yes, he's an adult, but he's still going through this as well. So you do have to think. The second thing I really did that I would encourage everyone who has anyone who is dealing with any kind of dementia is reach out to the Alzheimer's Association because they were invaluable. They came and met with me probably within the first maybe couple months. And they bring that care manager comes out and they go through everything that you might need to know going forward. So it's pretty general, but they're really a great support. And they have support groups. They have classes you can take. There's online things. There's online support groups. So you can figure out what works for you. For me, um, it was less about doing the groups and it was more about doing advocacy work. And so like you were talking about, I've done, you know, I'm on TV quite a bit, you know, advocating whenever there's something coming up. I'm on a um, committee for one of our uh, our Washington, D.C. representatives. So I do advocacy work through that. And so for me, that helps me feel like I have a little bit of, you know, a little bit of control over kind of what's going on because the reality is I don't. Right. So that I feel like I can help maybe down the road. Maybe this is things that will help maybe my son and anybody after him. Right. That won't maybe have to go through the same things we are. Um, Getting a great support system in terms of who your uh, medical care is. You know, we had a great neurologist. We're just in the process of switching because he had left, (laughs) unfortunately, left where he was working. So we're moving over to a new one. But having people that you trust in that whether it's their social workers, the doctor, their nurses, their nurse practitioners, really knowing that. And in New York State, we're really lucky. There's 10 um, centers for excellence for Alzheimer's care. And for us, one is in Albany and one's in Glens Falls. So we're really fortunate we're between both of them. So that's been a gift for sure on our end. And so, you know, it's it's really taking care of yourself. And, And it's hard to do because... You know, as much as I as much as I preach that, I know there's a lot of things I could still be doing better for myself to do that. But you know, you have to you have to do the best you can, and it's day by day. You know, some days are better than others. Yeah, and I'm wondering if some people who are listening are also curious to know: are what are the interventions for Alzheimer's? What do the doctors do? Are there certain medications or certain interventions that you guys have tried? And again, each person is an individual that you thought has been helpful outside of Chris's, you know, routine of working out, nutrition, and community. So in the beginning, there was definitely medication management options that we utilized. And it was one of the first one we used was Aricept. And that seems to be the first line that they use with dementia. And, you know, it worked great. But the unfortunate part is these are medications that are short term. So it worked for about, I would say, like seven months, which I think was about a month longer than they actually told us it would work. So we got seven months out of it. And it basically stalled his progression for a period of time. So that was really fantastic. There was about three or four more that we tried after that. And based on different side effects and it not always working, 
He ended up really within, I would say, two years, he was off medication because at that point we had gone through the gamut. The somewhat exciting part is that there are some new medications coming out now. They do have some really significant side effects. So it's one of those things that, again, you need to really talk to your doctor about. For us, you know, we are, with Chris being so young, we are looking at exploring those options. So again, when we have our appointment next month, we're going to look at what that really looks like. But they're you know, they're pretty significant side effects. It's infusions at this point. It's no longer oral medication. So there's a lot to it. So you do have to decide. You have to kind of weigh things out. And a lot of these medications are really for only early on in the progression of the disease. So that's, again, why it's really important that if you're having memory issues of any sort, why you really need to talk to your doctor instead of being afraid of like, well, I don't want this to be anything. You really want to catch it early so that you can use some of those from the medication standpoint is those are only good early on. So if you don't catch it, you know, within the first few years, you kind of are not going to be able to access a lot of these medications. In addition to that, there's a lot of things you can do. So like in the beginning, we did a lot of making sure he was reading more, making sure, right, taking in vocabulary, doing things that stimulate his brain. If he was, you know, we we did puzzles and we did, he did Sudoku and we did, there's a game called Bananagrams, which is like Scrabble. It's fun, but we get a little competitive with it. So, you know, but those are early on things, right? Keep his brain active. One of the very funny things that we did that's not for everybody is, so my husband is an 80s child. So he loved all those Atari games and all those things like that. We actually found a video game system that usually goes like in pizza places where you sit at it and play video games. We ended up buying one and, you know, I kind of thought it was silly at the time, but I do now, you know, all these years later, see the value in it because what happened was he was playing this game called Centipede where the worm comes down and he's got to shoot the worm and kill it and all this, that, and the other thing. And it's been keeping his hand-eye coordination really sharp. And so, and not only that, but he's entertained, it's keeping him happy. And it gives him something to do. He doesn't really play it so much in the summer, but in the winter when he's really confined to the house, you know, there's not so much to do. It gives him something to do for, you know, he goes down 20 minutes at a time, comes up, does other things, goes back down. And it gives him something that he enjoys. And so for him, that was a great thing. In the summer, he loves to garden. He's outside. He's hiking. You know, his he'll go hiking with his cousin once a week and he does stuff with his brother. So really trying to find what are those activities that your person really enjoys and kind of figure how you make that happen. And sometimes, you know, you have to be creative. You know, for us, the video game was a creative option that, you know, I I didn't think was going to work. And it's turned out to be this amazing thing for him. Yeah. All, all really great stories and great suggestions, too, that some people may not even think of. But like you said, you know, the, ha- the eye-hand coordination, you know, it's like maybe thinking at more as like entertainment or a video game, but really look at, you know, what that has done and is working the brain, you know, right. when he's playing that. And that's exactly right, because you have to think there's, you know, so for Chris, he just got diagnosed with, it's called idiopraxic, idio, idiomotor apraxia. And so basically he's starting to have difficulty with what his brain knows he needs to be doing with his hands is starting to become a little more difficult. So, you know, that's a challenge. So him using this video game where it's got the rollerball, it's got the joystick, it's whatever, it's helping him keep that from declining at a faster rate. So you need to figure out what, you know, what are the things that are happening? Because with Alzheimer's, there are so many different ways that the course goes. 
And so you have to work with your primary, you know, your neurologist, your primary care provider and figure out what those things are. But knowing your your partner, your loved one, your mother, your whomever, knowing things that they like, that's where you want to capitalize on those so that that brings the joy also back into their life and you can use it as a tool as well. Beautiful. Now, going back to kind of your anticipation of of this and the grief and what have you done action wise? You know, because like sounds like you've had you have some really good coping skills. You got your therapist on board. You have your friends. You have your support group. But like you said, checking in with what does my life look like? You know, how am I gonna spend my retirement? Do I downgrade this house? Do I stay in this house? And I know probably with our backgrounds we're maybe sometimes less likely to stay in denial for longer periods of time because we know like, okay, we have to take some action. We got to utilize these coping skills. I think that you've really utilized that and have looked far ahead. You've really faced, you know, what your future may look like. So what are some things that, or have you taken care of anything in those future things that maybe make you feel a little more settled in this process where it doesn't feel as overwhelming you know, or have you'll have more on your plate when he makes his transition. Any any suggestions on what you've done that might help other people? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I, you know, for me, how I started was we went the healthcare route first. So a lot of that was we got an elder care attorney, even though we, we you know, we're walking in the door and we're not your typical elder care attorney people, right? But we needed one to help us guide us through. We needed healthcare proxy for him. We needed power of attorney. We needed some legal things that I didn't even know in the beginning what those things were, right? But you need to know what are, you know, so does he have a do not resuscitate? Does he want certain things to happen? What are his wishes? And so at our age, we hadn't really talked about any of those things because we never really thought about it at our age. So really went through with a lawyer of like, what are those things that were on there? Creating a will, making sure that we had all those things in order. So from a legal standpoint, that was really our first starting point. And it was really helpful because then as we went to doctors, you know, I'm still at a point where I do have power attorney over Chris when I need it. We're not at that point yet, but when I get there, I don't have to scramble to get it done. So that's a really great thing. And so can I just interrupt you first? Sure. Just in case if people don't know what power of attorney is, what does that sure. mean? What kind sure. of decision can you make for him? Right. So what the power of attorney allows for is that when he is at a point that he is no longer able to make decisions for himself, I now will be able to make all decisions. And so it's a, it's just a legal way of protecting really how our family wants to operate and what Chris's wishes are and how we've determined things to go, that it just helps um, not have any legal interference from other people who may feel that things should go differently. So it's it's just a protection for us. Um, and again, it's one of those things that if you, you go to an elder care attorney to take care of all these, they're going to guide you on all these different steps of things that you need for your particular situation. For me, the longer term situation was much more, you know, like you said, it is we do try to go through through things with a little more quickly when we're clinical social workers and mental health professionals. Um, but it was harder for me to wrap my head around the future piece on what I was going to do. I did kind of bury my head in the sand a little bit about like, what do I do and how do I kind of do this? But when Chris started getting some more decline, I really did, you know, when medication wasn't working anymore, I had to really start to address okay, we live in this house, we have a mortgage, 
you know, there's a lot to taking care of a home. You know, my son won't be living here anymore. You know, it'll be just me. What do I want to do? And so I really had to sit down and think to myself, you know, do I want to live in a condo? Do I want to live in an apartment? Do I want to live here? Do I, you know, what kind of things do I really want to do? And so I had to really think about it from a different perspective because it was no longer a, what do we want to do? It's a, what do I want to do? And so it took some time for that. It was, it was pretty painful to go through because, you know, you don't ever want to admit that like, you got to make these decisions on your own. And, and so I did struggle a lot of time with feeling selfish about like, well, now it's about me when, you know, this really should be a time when it's about us. But I did have to think about what is my future and what does that look like? Because you have to be realistic at some point. And so at this point, you know, really decided, yes, okay, I'm going to stay in my home. So moving forward with that being for me, the right decision, and then kind of thinking about, now I pay attention to what were all the things that he was doing that I need to figure out how to do. So, you know, I've gotten pretty adept at, you know, how do I kind of fix a faucet and how do I, you know, if if this is going wrong or what do I need to do? And then, you know, you figure it out, right? And I've asked a lot of questions and and I've had to ask for some help on some things like I can't do electrical stuff. So I've definitely had to ask help for, you know, fixing a light fixture. You know, you, you do have to kind of step out of yourself and figure out what that looks like. But it does take some time and it's it's not easy and it is painful along the way. But you know, once I did decide that I was going to stay in the house, it was a lot easier for me. I felt a really big sense of relief that, okay, I've made a decision. Now I can figure out what that looks like for me going forward. You know, and the nice thing is, listen, I live in a house that if somewhere down the road, it becomes too much, I can sell it, right? It's not the decision I make today doesn't mean 10 years from now, it has to be exactly the same decision. And so I think giving yourself the grace of like, okay, I've made this decision right now, but knowing that it can always change is really helpful and comforting. Yeah, great. All right. Well, wow, that you've packed a lot <laughs> into this yeah. podcast. Um, so much, so much was covered. I think you gave a lot of really great tips too. Um, any other resources that you, besides the Alzheimer's Association, um, anything else that you can think of or any websites or, um, I mean, like you said, we're pre- pretty blessed in New York to have so many different centers, but anything else that you think would be a valuable resource? Yeah, I think really, you know, anybody who's dealing with any kind of dementia, you know, really go to, you know, just if you go online and you look up the Alzheimer's Association, they're across the country. It's a nationwide organization. Their websites are so comprehensive that you can start there. And there's really not a lot within their whole organization that you can't find that you need. And, you know, from there, it's really then partnering with your doctor. Your doctor in your local community might know other things that, you know, are available to you, you know, based on where you live. And I think that's important as well, whether you're here, you know, because even if you're if you're overseas and you're not in the United States, right, this website's still available to you, right? It's a starting point. And then you can kind of figure out what's in your community based on they will give you an idea of maybe what you potentially need. And you can kind of start to go from there. For me, I really, I will tell you, I really haven't had to go beyond the Alzheimer's Association because I've gotten everything I've needed from them. And it's really just been a huge gift. Good to know. And, you know, since you are going through this, have you thought at all about being a therapist for people who 
need support with a family member that has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's? I know you're kind of, it's a little raw and you're going through it, but, you know, is there room for you to maybe also think about that and what you're doing in your therapy practice? Or do you think you're just going to kind of keep your therapy practice as it is and not really branch out in this area? You know, I think for right now, what I've decided is that, you know, bringing it into my office, into my practice currently is probably not in anyone's best interest. So, you know, certainly when people, I, you know, I have people that come to me where they've got family members, I will guide them, you know, tell them to use the Alzheimer's Association. I, you know, a lot of people locally have seen me on TV, so they'll come in already knowing kind of my situation. I don't normally tell people, but they've seen me. So at this point, it's pretty out in the open. Um, in terms of actually doing the one-to-one work right now, that's not in my plan. I could potentially see that down the road, you know, when things are different. I, I don't ever see myself not working with the Alzheimer's Association in some way. So for me, potentially maybe down the road, adding this into my practice probably is the natural way it'll go. You know, but for right now, you know, I think the way things are going is is great, you know, so it, it's probably a future plan, though. It is definitely something I've thought about. Yeah. Well, you know, if if you ever do that, people will be very blessed because I'm sure, you know, there is that sense of comfort when people sit across from a therapist and, you know, yeah. they know that they're coming from a place, maybe have living, have lived some of that, you know, right. as well. but, but you're living it right now. So like, I am self that space and take care of yourself and, right. and yeah, and really, really excited that this is something that you're going to be talking about in the grief experience book. You know, probably a topic that I don't need, I don't know. I'd have to ask Kelly how many books have been written on anticipatory grief, you know, or they know. like small sections, but I think it's a great subject for us to talk about in the grief experience book. And, and we will go ahead and put that link in our show notes. If any of you would like to pre-order that book, it is coming out in February of 2024. Yep. Uh, so this podcast will probably be out before then. We are pre-recording these podcasts, but we do have the link in the show notes and we also have the link to all of Sherry's social media sites, um, you know, and, and if you do have a question, I'm sure she'll answer it if you'd like to her email. And I uh, just want to thank you so much for sharing your story and your vulnerability and, you know, just, you know, just being here and doing the best that you can. And, yep. you know, I just send all my love to you and Chris. Oh, thank you. You know, really hope that you know, you guys just move through the journey with grace and, yep. and ease as best you can. And I think you yep. guys are doing that. So, yep. You just got to do the best you can, right? And every day is different and you just got to take it day by day. And that really is how we operate. So, you know, it's all you can do. Absolutely. All right, Cherry. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the podcast again. And I'd like to thank all of you who are listening. I am sure that there are going to be um, a handful, if not, you know, many people that this podcast is really going to touch the hearts of. And Sherry is just a wealth of information. And so I also think this is a great podcast to share if Alzheimer's has affected your life or you might even have a friend who's going through something like this now. Please share the podcast. This is a, a great podcast to do that with. So I thank you all for listening and I will bring you another guest very soon. Take care, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the Path 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV.
Visit Pavel11TV.com to start a seven-day free trial of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's Pavel11TV.com. And be sure to use coupon code PODCAST30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now.